Books. Books. Books are your friends, my friends. Books keep you company. Books take you across the sea and down along a trail that never ends. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, in for Jean. And that was the theme song from the Mickey Mouse Book Club, the 1950s Mickey Mouse Book Club. Shireen, you're too young to remember that, but maybe you remember this. What do these books have in common? Native Son, Mm -hmm. The Grapes of Wrath, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Great Gatsby, and 1984. They're all depressing. (laughs) They're definitely not about topics that are lively and fun and fluffy. They're about racism, income inequality, our dystopian future. And by future, I mean right now. Yes. (laughs) Well, there's that. But I was thinking that they've all been part of our summer reading list, you know, when we were growing up, maybe in high school. I had to read To Kill a Mockingbird and The Great Gatsby. Those were the two that I had to read in high school. And the reason why we're talking about all this is, if you haven't figured it out yet, we are going to be doing the Code Switch summer reading list, a reading list of our own the 2019 edition. And like last winter's book list that Karen was here for, all of these are by or about people of color. And in this case, on this show, they are by and about people of color. Right, Karen? Yep. We asked our listeners to suggest books that they think people might read over the summer. Or maybe listen to, because Karen firmly believes that listening to a book counts as reading a book. I'm on the fence about that. Well, it's not exactly the same, Shireen, but I do both because I can't hold a book while I cook or walk the dog, and I like books, so I can cram in more this way. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, we're going to talk about a few of their suggestions in the first half, and after the break, we'll talk to two writers who've done different cultural spins on another book that's on a lot of high school summer reading lists, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I've never read Pride and Prejudice. I haven't seen the movie. I'm really curious about how Pride and Prejudice gets brown and proud. Well, there's a a, a long tradition of Pride and Prejudice adaptations, hmm. and there are at least a half dozen movie or television versions. So we'll have to watch some soon and bring you up to speed. Yeah. But first... Our readers got books. Lots of books. So we have a pile of books, and we're going to jump right in. Code Switch listener Jeremy McGinnis recommends a book that connects segregation back in the day to some things we've reported on here in the past couple years. Take a listen. Hi, my name is Jeremy McGinnis, and my book this summer is Race, Riots, and Roller Coasters, The Struggle Over Segregated Recreation in America. That book is by Victoria W. Walcott. And this is definitely something we've talked about on the Code Switch podcast. People mm-hmm. trying to integrate public pools, amusement parks, and city parks. Yep. Jeremy says after reading the book, he was astounded at the lengths to which some of these places would go to make sure they remained whites only. Jeremy says he started out in Pennsylvania, but then later moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg had a public pool that they cemented over so they would not have to integrate it back in the 60s. And it's still there. The cemented pool is still physically present. You feel just the the weight of it. These spaces you assume to be public and available are not. Jeremy says Wolcott's book draws a direct connection to the policing of black and brown bodies we see today. Hmm. The barbecue Beckys, the pool patties, and that Starbucks incident. This is why he suggested it for our list. I think this fits really nicely in that sweet spot of of culture, right? Because you've got your public spaces, of race, and also of what I think Coach Switch wrestles with is, is it's not geographically located. It's an American issue. 
Right, and so Wolcott is pulling from across the entire nation, from Florida to Seattle. And it's definitely a national issue. And just thinking about parks and public space, there is a park in our neighborhood, Mm -hmm. which our local magazine, L.A. Magazine, just wrote up calling it one of L.A.'s most undervalued retreats, which I found really interesting because this park is full of people of color. And I found really predictable and (laughs) very much in the vein of a lot of what we call city service magazines around the country that only focus on certain parts of the city. Mm -hmm. So they're saying it's undervalued. It's undervalued by whom? You know, there's lots of bodies in there on weekdays and on weekends. Lots of brown bodies. Who are enjoying the space that uh, apparently didn't exist until this magazine discovered it. So, yeah. Anyway, just a little detour, but the book is called Race, Riots, and Roller Coasters. And that's something for history buffs. What's next? Lynette Jacobs Preby had three suggestions, and we'll list all of them on our website. But here's one of her picks. My book recommendation is Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi. Fun reading by the pool. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big book. You know, I've been trying to finish this book for an entire year. It's very dense. It's yeah. good, but it's dense. Why did Lynette choose this book? Well, she says she likes long reads for the summer, and this mm. would be one of those. And Lynette says Kendi narrates this story in a really interesting way. He tells the history of America through five different characters in American history. And so you learn about those characters, but you're also learning about the history of racist ideas. And the five characters are? Cotton Mather, who is a Puritan preacher, Thomas Jefferson, William Lloyd Garrison, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Angela Davis. Sorry to correct you, Lynette, but I think it's Du Bois. Mm -hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois. That's how he pronounced it. And boy, if you could put all five of those people, all those brains, all that ego in one room and lock the door, the roof would probably blow off. Although (laughs) if I were a betting person, I'd put my money on Dr. Davis. Oh, yes. Yeah. Go, Angela. So what else do we have? Well, Lindsay Martin suggested The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. It comes out next month, so keep an eye out for it. You might remember him as the author of The Underground Railroad. Which I absolutely loved. It was one of my summer reads, and I can't remember if it was last summer or the summer before. That was right after it came out. Anyway, I loved it. It's still very much with me. And I'm not the only one who loved it. It's won a bunch of awards. Yeah, two biggies, the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. The Underground Railroad, just in case you haven't read it, is a surrealist novel about escaping the very real brutalities of slavery. And so I'm very excited about his new book. What's this about? Well, it's about a boys' reform school called the Nickel Academy, and it's set in 1960s Florida when Jim Crow laws were still officially on the books. The story follows two black boys who end up there and the terrifying abuse that occurred at that school. Lindsay hasn't read the book because it does come out in July, but the early buzz about it has her really excited. I think the Nickel Boys should be on the list because the story is a buried piece of Florida's history. Isn't Florida where they kept finding children's bodies buried under the ground 
of one of these schools? Mm-hmm. Florida ran a boys' reform school. I think it was called the Arthur Dozier School. And after some tips, investigators were shocked to find several bodies buried on the property, bodies of boys at the school who had mysteriously disappeared some years earlier. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, The Nickel Boys is a novel based on the true story of schools like Arthur Dozier, and Lindsay thinks it will be a must-read. I truly believe we need to confront our history. The bad can no longer be hidden and swept under the rug. It's the only way we can move forward together as a society and get one step closer to equality. Now, these are my kind of reads. I love to scream and cry and, you know punch my fist into the air when I'm reading a book. I love to feel very deeply. (laughs) But what about our listeners who don't maybe want to feel those types of intense emotions? Readers who want a little happy, Yes, how about some happy? (laughs) How about a mother-daughter story for a change? Okay. So I'm Bridgette Davis, and I'm the author of the memoir, The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life, in the Detroit numbers. And it's a memoir about my mom making a way out of no way when we were all growing up in the city by choosing a very unorthodox profession. She decided to become a numbers runner. She made a living by taking people's bets on three-digit numbers and collecting their money when they didn't win and paying them out when they did and profiting from the difference. And thanks to that profession, she gave us a middle-class life. Hmm. And it was illegal back then, right, playing the numbers? Oh, yeah. Playing the numbers were highly illegal. Although later on, interestingly, Shireen, the states basically did the exact same thing by establishing lotteries. Yes. Hmm. And no, there were not a lot of women at the upper levels of the numbers business. Brigitte says there wasn't a lot of work for black women that paid decently if you weren't college educated. Her mom happened to have been a math whiz. So she put those skills to work and decided she could do better and support her family by running numbers. It dawned on me that my mom was symbolic of a way of life that African-Americans had to figure out on their own. And largely because of discrimination, that she had to chase her American dream by getting around the obstacles that were put in place. This definitely sounds like a love letter to Brigitte's mother. It totally is. Fanny Davis died several years ago, but Brigitte wanted people to hear her mother's story and understand her determination and drive, and to see that what her mom did was in some ways representative of how many Black Americans had to do workarounds, legal and not, from Jim Crow in order to live their lives and support their families. All right, so those are some of our reader recommendations and one of Karen's. Yep. You'll find these and more summer reading recommendations at npr.org slash codeswitch. So go there at the end of the podcast. Meanwhile, when we come back, the reading assignment that made you groan as a high school student, remixed with brown people. Stay with us. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from BetterHelp. Online counseling by licensed professional counselors specializing in issues including depression, stress, and anxiety. Visit BetterHelp.com code to learn more and get 10% off your first month. African Americans moved out of bondage and into freedom with stories wrapped in songs. These spirituals held the cries and the hallelujahs of a people rising and falling as they moved beyond the shackles of slavery. It's Wade in the Water, a 26-part series on African-American sacred music traditions. Listen on NPR Music and NPR One. Shireen. Karen. Code Switch. All right, Karen, it's time for you to tell us about not one, but two books loosely based on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I didn't read Pride and Prejudice, so for those of us who have no clue what it's about, can you do a quick recap? Basically, it's about upward mobility for women through marriage in England in the early 1800s. And it focuses on classism and what happens when we make assumptions about other people. Oh, assumptions. Like the old folks say, when we assume, we make an ass out of you and me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that thing because I got to say ass and hear people say ass and I just thought that was great. Well, still do. Anyway. (laughs) So the original P&P was set in the countryside outside London and was the story of the Bennets, a family of five girls, all of whom needed to be married off. Of course. upward mobility. The second eldest, Elizabeth, or Lizzie, had no interest in that. Team Lizzie. Yes. She found the whole looking for a husband thing demeaning and too... Transactional, I'm sure. Yes. But eventually, our Lizzie meets Fitzwilliam Darcy, a handsome and most important, obscenely rich young man. And she turns her nose up at him because she finds him snotty. Mm. Only she discovers once she stops <clears throat> assuming he's not snotty. He's just really, really shy. And he wants a woman who wants to be with him, not his piles of money. Okay, sounds romantic. I'm feeling this. So how do these two new versions of the old Pride and Prejudice compare? Am I to assume stuck-up rich dudes play a role? Uh, yeah, shy dudes who were maybe kind of stiff because they're so shy. And yeah, they have some money. (laughs) The first book is called Pride. It's actually a young adult novel. And instead of the English Bennett girls, Pride centers on the Benitez family. Uh I knew you'd love that. A close Afro-Latino family of five girls. Instead of Lizzie Bennett, we have Zuri Benitez. And instead of the English countryside, Pride is set in rapidly gentrifying Bushwick, a Brooklyn neighborhood. All right, I'm feeling this already, and I love that it's set in Bushwick. Here's Pride's author, E.B. Zaboy. I grew up in Bushwick, and Bushwick has seen a lot of changes, and I wanted to really write a love story where the young people are grappling with that change without the violence, without all the uh, disenfranchisement that usually comes with urban spaces. The story begins, Shireen, when the Darcy family... Yes, they have the same name as the rich guy in the original Pride and Prejudice, moves into a brownstone across the street from the Benitezes that several families used to live in. Ah, sounds like gentrification. One of my favorite topics. It is indeed. (laughs) Pride's heroine, Zuri, immediately tags the Darcys as colonizers, even though they're black. Ooh. Yeah, but she hasn't met that kind of black person in the public school she goes to, and her attitude lets Darius Darcy know he doesn't belong. 
especially compared to his friend Warren, who goes to the same private school as Darius. Only Darius's family is paying full freight, and Warren is a scholarship student. Warren grew up in the projects not far from Zuri's home. Ebi Zaboy says she really wanted to delve into the intra-class tension among black people that she doesn't see reflected very often in popular culture. So Darius, within the context of Bushwick, doesn't feel black enough and Warren, who does come from that neighborhood, has feels like he has a leg up uh, with capturing uh, Zuri's heart. And in that sense, they, they these are two guys, two dudes who look very similar, but are expressing their blackness very differently because they do come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Zuri has to kind of get over herself to discover who Darius really is and what she really wants as she gets ready to leave home for college. So Shireen is an identity story and a love story. So that's Pride by Evie Zaboy. And yes, it sounds like it is definitely brown. It definitely is. And you said there were two brown Pride and Prejudices. So tell me about the other one. It's Aisha at Last by Usman Jalaluddin. It's a great story about a young Muslim poet, Aisha Shamsi, who lives in Toronto and works as a substitute teacher in her day job. Aisha doesn't have four sisters like Lizzie Bennett in Pride and Prejudice and Zuri Benitez in Pride, but like Lizzie and Zuri, Aisha meets a handsome, well-to-do young man she finds totally off-putting. Because he's pretentious? Well, she thinks he is, and because Khalid, that's his name, is what she calls a fundy guy, an Islamic fundamentalist. A fundy guy. I've never that? heard that. Yeah. And he's super judgmental because he believes being faithful requires strict adherence to his interpretation of Islam. Khalid is an IT genius, but he wears a chest-length beard and a skull cap and insists on coming to work in a long tunic. And that makes some of the people at his job uncomfortable. Traditionalist that he is, when he marries, he's going to let his mother choose his bride because that's the way it's always been done. I'm just going to say, if I let my mom pick my boyfriends, I would have avoided a lot of heartache in my 20s. So I don't know. Maybe your mom picking your wife isn't so bad. <laughs> mm, I don't know. <laughs> Usma says she didn't start out to write a Muslim Pride and Prejudice. I just set out to write a funny, joyful book about Muslims because, as you know, we're a community where there's a lot of painful storytelling, but not a lot of joy. This is true. And that's exactly what Usma wanted to counter with this story. She also wanted to examine how you can identify with being two things at once. My life. I'm the child of immigrants from India. I was born in Canada. Most of my friends were born or immigrated very young to Canada. And so our experience is such deeply rooted in, in a very close-knit Muslim community, but also very Canadian. Usma says they ski and ice skate and go to hockey games and walk around with cups full of coffee or chai from Tim Hortons. Timmy's is our northern neighbor uh, equivalent of Starbucks, I believe. Oh, so it's a national birthright. Okay. <laughs> and like Usma, Aisha is a smart, modern, independent woman. She is a dutiful daughter and granddaughter, but she also performs at poetry slams. Oh, all of this feels very 90s. In this scene from the audio version, Aisha's going to meet her best friend at a lounge for a spoken word night. She's settling in at a table when she gets some unwanted attention. Hey, beautiful. A tall man holding a bottle of Heineken smiled seductively. I'm Mo. I bet your parents don't know you're in a place like this, dressed like that. A veil chaser. 
Aisha could spot one a mile away. Veil chasers thought women in hijab were an exotic challenge. Like the pimply white guy who had asked Aisha to prom every year in high school, and even offered to wear an Indian outfit and turban if she acquiesced. Other veil chasers had tried to pick her up at bus stops and malls, and on one memorable day, a veil chaser had administered her driving exam. She'd passed and even given him her fake number. Mostly, they were a pain. They always commented on her headscarf and usually said something ignorant. As if on cue, Mo gave her a smoldering look. If you're getting hot in that thing, you can take it off. I won't tell. Mo, I'm not interested. Why don't you go smile at those girls? She waved toward a small group of young women crowded around the stage. He didn't look away or even blink. You're so mysterious. Can I buy you a drink? I don't drink, she said coldly. And if your name is Mo, short for Muhammad, you know why. Now please, go away. Well, that was very polite of her. <laughs> Uh, also, this feels very reminiscent of my early years going to spoken word events, getting hollered at by men named Mo. <laughs> Love Jones, only with Muslims, yes. Yes, exactly. Usma Jalaluddin says she thought showing this aspect of Aisha was important. One of the things I really wanted to do, and I think that um, that is one of the central themes of uh, Aisha at Last, is the idea of diversity within diverse communities. And this is across the board. You know, a lot of people think of South Asians, uh, you know, having a very strong tradition of arranged marriage. And while that is true in some families, in other families, it's completely unheard of. Shireen, Aisha is from a family that will let her marry if and when she chooses. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'd like for her to. They want her to be happy, but they're not going to force her to. Although, as one of her aunties points out, she's too old. 27. Oh, boy. And too brown to be as eligible as the auntie's own paler, younger daughter. Mm-hmm. So we've got colorism in this book, which mm -hmm. this type of colorism is something that we've talked about from time to time on Code Switch. Yep. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying Aisha ends up in a good place with a good man. Ooh. Well, I'm a sucker for a good romance. So when are both of these books might make my personal list even though it doesn't sound like I'm going to be screaming or crying or shouting at anybody. At some point you may, actually. <laughs> at the pool. Yeah. Uh, Karen, did either E.B. or Usma have any summer reading suggestions of their own? Yeah. E.B. wanted us to consider this YA book. The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon. When I think of that novel, it makes my heart and mind smile because it's equally smart and intellectual and heartwarming. Oh, I love that. More love. Yay. And also Yara Shahidi's in the movie. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and Uzma's book is the story of two sisters who are completely different from each other and who love each other fiercely. Sister of My Heart by Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. I really, really loved it. Lyrical, beautiful. It, it's, it's a little bit older, but uh, I, I really like that author. She's, she's a fantastic author. And Shireen, do you have a book you'd like to recommend? It's also a little bit older. It was published in 1993. And with this recommendation, I'm going to bring us back full circle to the beginning of our podcast because it is a book about a dark, dystopian future 
that feels very present, <laughs> very right now. You like those fun books, don't oh, you? Oh, I do. <laughs> um, it's Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Yes. It's an amazing read. It is. The protagonist is young and black, and she's trying to survive and make sense out of the world around her, which has gone haywire. Pear-shaped? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Yes. Um, She lives in Southern California. The country's violent. It's scary. It's run by an authoritarian government. Hmm. Climate change and a drug epidemic are huge parts of the storyline. And let's just say it made me want to update my emergency preparedness kit because it felt very real. That's Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And the next book on my list is its sequel, which is Parable of the Talents. I haven't read that yet, but I'm hoping it's just as good. What about you, Bates? I loved a novel by Ayobami Adebayo called Stay With Me. It's a fractured love story set in contemporary Nigeria, and it's about a woman's struggle to become herself, despite the expectations of her husband, parents, and especially her in-laws. The heroine and her husband have been married for a few years, and they're having trouble having a child, and they're being pressed relentlessly to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Anything else would be a spoiler, Shireen, but trust me, Stay With Me is a deeply thoughtful book. I, yes, I did. I listened to the audio version, and the narrator, Adoja Ando, made it almost impossible to walk away from. Hmm, so maybe I'll listen to a book this yeah, summer. Yeah, that's a good idea. Try it's it. a new thing for me. And that's our show. If you want to check out the entire list of our recommended summer books, go to npr.org slash codeswitch. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. And we want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Sign up for our newsletter, which Karen Greasby Bates writes most weeks at npr.org slash newsletter slash codeswitch. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez and Michael Polino and edited by Sammy Yenigan. And big thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for that Aisha at last excerpt. It was read by Roshni Shulka. Shout out to the Code Switch fam, Jean Demby, Adrian Ferrito, Leah Danella, Kumari Devarajan, Kat Chow, Steve Drummond, and L.A. Johnson. Our interns are Michael Paulino and Jess Kung. A previous version of this story misstated author Victoria W. Wolcott's first name as Virginia. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. See ya. Peace. When you're paying for college on your own, there's a lot to balance. To help you get through it all, NPR's Life Kit talked to the real experts, students. Finding a side hustle that works for you and works for your schedule is hugely beneficial. Find Life Kit's new guide on how to pay for college in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit.